But if you take a man in an established church and you make him an elder and he's a new believer, pride will blind him and it will lead to, look at the end of verse 6, he will fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. It will lead to the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, some people interpret this to mean the condemnation that the devil gives. It can be translated the condemnation of the devil. The devil doesn't condemn. God does. This is not the devil condemning anybody. This is the condemnation incurred by the devil. A leader who is too immature to lead will become proud because he's elevated above his peers, which will go to his head, and the result will be the same thing that happened to the devil. What happened to the devil? He was lifted up with pride. is an ugly thing. Pride caused the downfall of Lucifer, the son of the morning. And throughout history, pride has brought many people down. Napoleon was convinced he could invade and conquer Russia in the winter. That didn't work out very well at all. Now that sort of pride is indeed catastrophic, because there were many soldiers who died in those battles. As Pastor Steve has been teaching us about the deadliness of pride when it comes to elders and church leaders, that can have horrible repercussions in the church and throughout the community. As we are looking forward to today's verse-by-verse broadcast, Pastor Steve will continue to teach in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but he will also be taking us to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. So if you're able to follow along in your Bible, have those two passages ready to go. Now, here is our verse-by-verse teacher, Steve Kreloff, pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Now, it's interesting, when Titus is sent to the islands of Crete, the exception is made. Paul tells Titus to ordain elders in every city, but the interesting thing is that he does not list as one of the qualifications that he should not be a new convert. Why? Because everybody was basically a Crete, a new convert. You had to have some leadership. But the issue of pride would not be magnified like it would at Ephesus because you didn't have men who had been elders for years and then you put a man who's been saved a short time with them. And so I want you to understand that, that there seems to be an exception at Crete because everybody was a new convert. There would not be the problem of pride in the sense that there would be at Ephesus. But if you take a man in an established church and you make him an elder and he's a new believer... Pride will blind him and it will lead to, look at the end of verse 6, he will fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. It will lead to the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now some people interpret this to mean the condemnation that the devil gives. It can be translated the condemnation of the devil. The devil doesn't condemn. God does. This is not the devil condemning anybody. This is the condemnation incurred by the devil. A leader who is too immature to lead will become proud because he's elevated above his peers, which will go to his head, and the result will be the same thing that happened to the devil. What happened to the devil? He was lifted up with pride. And he fell from his exalted position. That's the point. Will you turn back in the Old Testament to Isaiah? Isaiah 14. Great passage of scripture, way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, tell us what happened to the devil. Now, the devil's name was Lucifer. 
He was the morning star. He was the son of the dawn. He was gorgeous. He was probably the most gorgeous angel of all. But something happened. Something happened. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, we read this. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, and this is the reason why Satan was cut down. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And God says, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, Lucifer had an eye problem. I, 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 I will do this. I will be like this. I will be equal to God. That is his pride. And God says, you think you're going to be exalted? I'm going to send you to the pit. That was the condemnation incurred on the devil. When Satan lost sight of reality due to his pride, God cut him down. And the point that Paul is making, the parallel is this, that when a new convert is put in a position of leadership with men who are mature, it will swell his head and God will have to cut him down. Now, does that mean he'll necessarily lose his title? No. I know a lot of proud men in the ministry. They still have a title, but you know what? Though they have a title, they don't have an effective ministry. You can put a title on anybody. You can call anybody a pastor. But if people aren't following you, then it does no good. It doesn't matter. You're not a pastor except in name. Pastor has to have sheep who follow him. That's why in John 10, Jesus said, I have sheep. That's why you know that I'm the good shepherd. He'll be inflated with a sense of his own importance, and God will cut him down. Now, the whole issue in verse 6 is not so much about a new convert, but the issue beyond the surface is one of humility. Elders must be men who are humble. Greatest need in the ministry, in my opinion, is humility. Humility. They're not to be proud. When a man is proud, you know what happens? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. You set yourself up to stumble when you're proud. In fact, in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5, two verses that have meant so much to me goes like this. They're parallel verses. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. When a man begins to have an inflated ego in the ministry, God resists him. Could you imagine an elder being resisted by God? I can't think of anything more counterproductive. In John chapter 13, Jesus gave the whole model for us of what the church age was to be about. Humble enough to wash people's stinking feet. Muddy, cruddy feet. Get in between those toes. And not to be so exalted that you couldn't do that. I like to point that out so you get a vivid picture just after you've had dinner. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says that an elder is not to lord it over the flock. He is to be an example, which means he is to serve them. Be just like the Lord. God has a way of cutting down the diatrophies of the world. Remember diatrophies in 3 John, verse 9? He is the man who loved to be first. And John says, when I get there, I'll deal with him. How he dealt with him, I don't know, but you can really guess that John dealt with him severely. Now, what is this saying to us as a church? As a church, we have to keep in mind that it's our responsibility to protect new converts from being too quickly put into a position of leadership. We need to protect them from being rushed along too quickly to be elders. Now, we need to be sensitive. We don't want to wait 25 years before we say somebody's ready. We don't want to go the other extreme. But this takes sensitivity to the Spirit of God. You don't want to rush somebody into a position of leadership as an elder too quickly. 
We don't want to stifle ministry. I gave a message this morning about why it's necessary to minister. So when people want to minister, we don't want to stifle that. But being an elder is the highest level of ministry in the church. And we do want to be very careful about that. They're just too vulnerable to pride. They need some time and they need some seasoning. Now this is very, very practical. I have met men in the ministry who are very proud. They love to tell you about their accomplishments and all they've done for the Lord. And really what they're saying is the Lord needs me and I've baptized so many this year and I've done that. And God's going to resist that thinking. And those people, and he'll deal with them as he did with the devil unless they repent and confess their sin. How do you know if a man is ready? I mean, that's really the question. How do you know if a man is ready to be an elder? How long do you wait? I'll tell you one indication. It's a very important indication. Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom is what? The servant of all. You know how you know if a man is ready? When he's a servant. When he's a servant. When you see him willing to do anything that the leadership or the church needs, then you know he's ready. But when a man says that he's got to be put in a position of leadership right away, then you understand he's not ready. I'll never forget the story I heard of Josh McDowell. He graduated with honors from Talbot Theological Seminary. He went to Bill Bright of Campus Crusade, and he said, I'm here, I'm ready. You know what he did for the next year? Bill Bright assigned him to cleaning toilet bowls. That's right. Josh McDowell's been used greatly of the Lord. Why? Because he was willing to be the servant of all. That's what Jesus said. The greatest in the kingdom is not the one who tells you how great he is, but the one who doesn't realize he's great because he's too busy being a servant of everyone else who thinks they're great. So the area of humility is one in which the man needs to be blameless. Then finally, in our nine-week study, and maybe this is very, very pertinent for all of us, he's one who has to be blameless in the area of his reputation with the community. A good reputation. Look at verse 7. Let's look at the beginning. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. You may say in your version, those outside. It means outside the church, the unsaved community. His reputation must be that of a blameless character. Your reputation with those you live with, those you work with, those you have business transactions with, must be favorable. Now they may not agree with you. In fact, they won't agree with you theologically. And they're probably not going to agree with you on your high standards. And they may even dislike you for your standards, but they must at least see that you are consistent. They must at least respect you for your consistency. They must be able to speak well of your integrity, your gracious spirit, and your moral character. Why? Those outside the church, unsaved, probably know you better than those inside the church. That's right. You probably spend more time with them than you do with those inside the church. Outsiders know you and how you carry on your business transactions. They know what you do when Christians aren't watching. They know how you really are other than Sunday. Outsiders are aware of your reputation of either honesty or dishonesty. Outsiders know if you pay your bills on time. Outsiders know all of these things. See, the real test of a man's character isn't what happens on Sunday. That's not the basis. Anybody can smile and look good on Sunday. But what goes on Monday through Saturday is the test of a man's character and how unbelievers view him. Let me just tell you a pet peeve that I have. And I think a lot of Christians are guilty of this. I've been waiting for years to when this would apply I've held it in the back of my mind when this would apply. So you're getting it for the first time. I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but it's a pet peeve that irritates me to no end. Christians are sometimes the rudest people when they go out into a restaurant after church on either Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. They usually come in a group and they are the rudest, most demanding people on the face of the earth. And then what really gets me is they have the gall not to leave a tip. 
I want you to know that if you're like that, you don't have a good reputation with those outside the church. Now, you may think that's a little thing, but that's not a little thing. That's very important. And I think we really have a poor testimony in that area, and we need to be so careful. We come into a restaurant, we're demanding, we're loud, we're boisterous, we're sometimes rude, and then if we leave a tip at all, it's usually very, very little, and we've given the waitress or waiter a hard time. I think that fits in here. It's our reputation, not with church people, but outsiders. How do they perceive us? Because how they perceive us is really the way we are when our guard is down. You see, if a church leader's got a lousy reputation in the community, then the church he represents can have a spiritual impact on the community. Right? I mean, you can't have a spiritual impact on people in the community when the leadership of the church has a rotten reputation. Let me put it to you another way. If the people you work with hear that you're asked to be an elder or a deacon and they think it's the biggest joke in the world, then you've got problems. Then you should probably not be an elder or a deacon. When you come into work on Monday and tell them that that's what happened and they snicker and think it's the greatest joke to hit the company, then that tells you something. It tells you you ought to resign. As I said before, this doesn't mean that unbelievers are going to agree with your theology or even appreciate your character or high standards, but at least they will know that you are consistent, that you practice what you preach, that your reputation in the church is the same as it is in the world, that there is a consistency there, that there is no dichotomy between church life and secular life. I want you to understand there's going to be antagonism in the community towards Christians, and I want you to understand that you will suffer reproach as a Christian. Let me show you what I mean, lest you go away from here confused. In Matthew chapter 5... Jesus said this, Blessed are you when men revile you. That is to say, when men bring reproach upon you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. This is going to happen. And then keep that in mind and then turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the verse we really want to look at. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now it says back in 1 Timothy 3, keep your finger there, 1 Peter 4, but in 1 Timothy 3 it says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach. Into reproach. Let's stop there for a moment. But in these two verses we learn that the world is going to reproach us. The world is going to say things against us and persecute us. How do we reconcile this? Well look at verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 4 and 16. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. In other words, what he's saying is, yes, there will be antagonism in the community towards Christians. But it should never be because of ungodly behavior. It should only be because of godliness, your Christian testimony. 2 Timothy 3.12 If any man lives godly in Christ Jesus, he's going to suffer persecution. So do you understand? Peter is saying this. If you suffer, make sure it's as a Christian, not as a troublemaker. Make sure it's because of your godliness, not because of your godlessness. So we know that a man with a poor reputation in the community shouldn't be an elder. But why? Well, let's look at verse 7 again. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. What does it mean he may not fall into reproach? In other words, he won't draw upon himself and the church the reproaches of the world. It would bring disgrace to the cause of Christ. That's the thing that's so harmful. It's not that this fellow out there is working as a lone ranger, that if people think, oh, he's inconsistent, that's too bad. No, he brings reproach upon the cause of Christ. He brings reproach upon the church. 
You can't separate the man from the ministry he represents. If he's a leader in the church, you don't want people saying, if he's a leader in that church, then I'm not going to go there. I wouldn't darken their doorstep. I remember hearing John MacArthur on a cassette message where he said this. He said, a man in his church came to him and said, John, I've been witnessing to someone in the community. And this fellow stopped me and he said, what church do you go to? And he said, well, I go to Grace Community Church of the Valley. The unsaved man said, then I don't want to listen to anything you have to say. And the other fellow, the one witnessing, said, why? He said, you know the most crooked lawyer in town goes to that church. Guess what MacArthur did? Now, I don't know the man's name, and I don't even think the pastor knew the man's name. But MacArthur got up the next Sunday, and he told that story. And he said, this fellow says the most crooked lawyer in town goes to this church. I don't know who you are, but we'll find out if you don't take care of it quickly. That's the way to handle that. That's right. Because you see, our witness is a corporate witness. Our witness is a collective witness. And you've had that experience. You've witnessed to somebody. They know someone you know, or they know someone who professed faith in Christ, and they say, oh... Listen, I don't want to be there. I don't want to have anything to do with that. If that's the way Christianity is, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. See, they mess it up for everybody. It's a young man I know who I remember witnessing to this fellow. We were getting nowhere. He seemed to agree, and yet there was something bothering him. Well, I learned later from his in-laws that this young man works for a Christian leader. His boss is a Christian leader in a church, out of state, not even in the area. This Christian leader doesn't pay this young man on time. Guess what kind of impression Christianity and the gospel would make on this young man? He's obviously going to think, Christians are hypocrites. Christianity is phony. You see, that's why when I was speaking to him, it made no impact on him, though he mentally agreed with everything, and I couldn't understand what's his problem. Well, his problem is he knows this guy who ought to keep quiet or get his life in order, and preferably ought to get his life in order. Another illustration. There have been people over the years who have witnessed to my mom and dad, my mom, obviously, when she was alive. My dad is still alive. And there was uh, one man in particular who was very outspoken with my father. And then remember what I told you about Christians tipping? I suppose that I'm very sensitive about this because my dad had the opportunity to have dinner with this man in a restaurant. And this man didn't tip after. In fact, there was a whole group of people together and none of them tipped, except I think one. And they had all been vocal and very verbal and witnessing to my father. And my father said to me later, he said, I can't believe it. Now here's an unsaved man who cares more about giving a waitress a tip than save people. He said, I can't believe it, that they wouldn't do that. Now my dad's value system is like that. And do you realize that those people lost their whole testimony with my father? No matter what else they said after that, it made no impact on him. That's the reproach that Paul is talking about. They fall into reproach. The church is so often attacked because its members are a disgrace to the gospel, especially leadership. I think of Romans chapter 2, verse 24, where Paul says to the Jewish people, because of you, the gospel is disgraced among the Gentiles. What an indictment. An elder who disgraces the cause of Christ will be criticized, he'll be insulted, and he'll lose his influence for the Lord. In other words, he'll lose his ministry, even if he has his title. He'll lose his ministry. And what will be the result? Look at the end of verse 7. Not only will he fall into reproach, but he'll also fall into the snare of the devil. Now this is different than the condemnation of the devil. The condemnation is because of pride, he lost his ministry, he fell. But the snare of the devil, the snare means trap, it's an animal trap. Do you realize that Satan is like a hunter? 
He walks about seeking whom he might devour, and he devours church leaders who are not living consistent lives. When a church leader is under attack and everyone is suspicious of him, he is prone to being discouraged, he'll feel crushed, and he'll feel ashamed. In this state of emotional trauma, there'll be despair. When he's in this area of despair in his life, it will give the devil an opportunity to trap him into more sin. Things will develop such as anger, bitterness, retaliation, lying, hypocrisy, all these things. And the reason is because he's not consistent. And rather than get consistent, he'll become bitter and he will strike back. And when that happens, he's trapped. His sin will lead to more sin. Being suspicious of people, he'll close his heart to people. He'll close his mind to people. He will not be transparent. He will not be open. He has fallen into the trap of the devil. So when a man is inconsistent in his life, it becomes a target and becomes a target for public criticism. It will give Satan an opportunity to destroy him spiritually. And that's what happens. In fact, we just had indication evidence of this this last week. If you've been listening to the news, reading the newspaper about the well-known Christian leader, Jim Baker, who regardless of what happened in that circumstance, and I don't know what you can believe in the newspapers and what you can't, regardless of what happened, there's a trap that was set for him. And he has fallen. And Satan delights in that. That's the trap and the snare of the devil. The enemy of the soul is always looking to destroy a Christian leader. Why? Because it brings so much damage to the cause of Christ. If he can bring down a leader, he brings down everybody else in the church with him. And some people never recover. How do we sum this up? Selecting elders in a church is, I believe, the most significant thing that this church will do, that any church can do. Why? Because everything else in the church rises or falls on its leadership. Everything else Someday the men who serve you won't be here. God will either take them home or God will change their ministry. They just won't be here unless Jesus comes very quickly for us. What you do in the future as a church depends on what you do with these truths you've been learning. That's why we've taken so much time. What the future of Lakeside has, what the future is, depends on what you as a congregation does with all the truths that you've been learning. It's so important because elders are to be models for you. This is not just for church leadership. The reason this is important is because what the elders are is exactly what the church will become. And this is what we've been saying all along. They are models for you. I am a model for you. Our other elders are models for you. What you see in us, you will become. And if we're off in any one of these areas, you will be off most likely in that area. And we don't want that. Because if we're models for you, then this is the standard for everyone. That's why Gene Getz in his great book, he calls it the measure of a man. Because this is the measure for everybody in the church. What God wants in elders, that's his desire in everybody. We're just to model those standards for you. Would you look back in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1? We started with this verse and we'll close with it. It is a trustworthy statement. It's a statement that everybody knows to be true. That's what he's saying. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And then Paul runs for the next few verses with the standards. You know what he's saying? As we've said before, it's a noble work. There is no more noble, more excellent work than the work of being involved in the pastorate, being a church leader. It is a noble work, therefore it's a man's, a certain noble kind of a person. And I want to encourage you by saying this. Leaders are made. None of your elders are perfect. They're sinners just like you. And God is continually making us. And God is continually molding us. But there needs to be some level of consistency so that you have models to follow. That you can look at them, look at us and say, so that's how the Christian life is to be lived. 
May God apply this to each one of us. How do we sum up these last two broadcasts? Selecting elders in a church is the most significant thing a church will do. Why? Because everything else in the church rises or falls on its leadership. Elders are to be models in their churches. However, this is not just for church leadership. The reason this is important is because what the elders are is exactly what the church will become. Just at the end of the broadcast, Pastor Steve recommended a book by Gene Getz, which is titled The Measure of a Man. This is in fact the measure for everybody in the church. What God wants in elders, that's his desire in everybody. And by the way, I just did a little online shopping, and Gene Getz's book, The Measure of a Man, is available from several sources. We have a few more verse-by-verse broadcasts before we get to the end of this series about God's standards for church leadership. So don't miss any of these upcoming broadcasts. However, if perchance you do, you can always go over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast.